Have you ever wondered if there's any unsolved murders from ancient Rome, or if any books from this time have survived to this day? Well, have we got a story for you. This is the AD History Podcast, weaving a tapestry of world history from 1 AD to HD, powered by TGNR. Get your good news that's real news at TGNR by visiting tgnreview.com. Now here are your hosts, Paul K. DiCostanzo and Patrick Foote. Brought to you by London and New York City, you are listening to the AD History Podcast. I am Paul K. DiCostanzo, and I am joined by my co-host, Patrick Foote. How are you, Patrick? You've been busy. I have been busy, Paul. Since last time we spoke, I've been to Sri Lanka. And boy, that was was an experience, as you know. I have to say at the top here, thank you so much for getting the podcast out while I was sitting with my feet up in Sri Lanka. I remember checking my podcast out. I was like, oh, I've got a new episode. I was just thinking of you, bless you, sitting there working hard to get that already. And I'm just sitting there literally with my feet up with like a alcoholic drink in my hand. I was like, oh, hard work. Well, you know, anything like anything in life, especially when you're doing something special, something worth doing, it's always a team effort. So while, while I took it on my back this time, you would just as quickly and as well take it on yours. But yeah, tell us a yes. little bit about your trip. It was so fascinating. There's so much to talk about, but it was really interesting. If you want to go somewhere and see as much as possible in a small area, go to Sri Lanka. In two and a half weeks, we saw beaches, mountains, like not so much desert, but like shrubland, thick jungle, like everything's there. Go for deep history, go for amazing animals. We saw an elephant just on the side of the road as we were driving up to look for other elephants. Oh, that's amazing. It was just at the side of the road. It, it was incredible. Someone was having a picnic on the side of the road. I don't know why. <laughs> but clearly, they had an elephant come past, and this elephant was just eating this like half-finished picnic. It was just finishing it off. It was really just like, whoa. Wow. And because we were told on the way up, because we were going to a nature park to look for elephants, and we were told on the way up, Oh, keep an eye out, you might see some in the distance. So we were in this uh, Jeep and I hear my girlfriend gasp. I'm like, she's like, oh. I'm like, what, what, what? And I'm looking off in the distance trying to look for an elephant. Like, I don't see one. And I look in front of me and it's just there. I'm like, oh, I was looking too far away. This elephant's right here. But yeah, that's just a tiny glimpse of what I got up to over there. It was absolutely incredible. I'd recommend everyone go, um, especially now at the moment. Um, in recent months, Sri Lanka went through some issues. They had the terrible bombings over Easter and the country's still trying to pick up from where it was and a lot of tourists aren't going there. So it's a safe country to go to. Just please give them a chance because they're struggling a bit out there at the moment. Just far as let, let that in there. Though I do have one question because there's only so much that, that one can say in a brief period of time with an experience as uh, as incredible as your own and just in terms of the general experience, what do you, what takeaway would you want our listeners to have for those who have not traveled to Sri Lanka? Don't be afraid, I would say, is the best example, especially if you're from somewhere like England. I hate using, I hate the whole like developing nation. I hate all those sort of terms, third world. I, I don't like those. But if you're from somewhere like England or the United States, don't be afraid. It's definitely the most different part of the world I've ever been to socially, economically. It's it's very different. I'm not saying it's better or worse. It's just different to here. Even like when I went to Japan, Tokyo might seem nuts, 
But it's fundamentally just like New York, it's the same sort of place. This is a completely different lifestyle happening there. And don't be scared of any of it. Don't think, oh, I'm not doing that because it's not how I do it in England. Just go along, enjoy the ride. That's what I would say. Fair enough. Well, not only have, have you been out and about and backpacking off the southern tip of India, but during that time as well, I was contacted by a pair of hosts who also do a fellow history podcast called Potting Through Time. They describe themselves as a historical variety show. But what they really specialize in, and this is the thing I found very appealing, is they focus on lesser-known history. And sometimes it can be downright obscure, depending on the audience in question. And so when they reached out to us, the invitation was to both Patrick and myself, but of course Patrick was out and about, and so I was here. And they basically said, feel free to join us on a topic of your choice, which I very gladly accepted. And it was a deep dive. And I, when I mean deep dive, I mean deep dive. We're talking like two and a half hours here uh, going into uh, the Soviet Union's foreign policy during the 1930s and the early 1940s, which of course would, included the all-important yet, yet seldom properly covered Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, which in many respects was the final piece that allowed Hitler to plunge Europe into war by invading Poland because he could at the very least guarantee that that Stalin would not interfere as an adversary. And in addition to that, we also talked about the early Soviet period, Stalinism, in addition to Stalin himself, a little bit about Hitler and just their riot, you know, riding the Nazi tiger prior to the invasion of the Soviet Union in June 1941 what we call today the Eastern Front, what the Soviets then and most Russians now refer to as the Great Patriotic War. What was that podcast called? Podding Through Time. P-O-D-D-I-N-G Through Time. It's a clever name. It's a clever name. Yeah, really good, really good. I don't think you'd mentioned it already. So, oh, I bet actually mentioned what this podcast is called. No, um, I'm really upset I didn't get to join it. I did listen to bits of it. I haven't listened to your episode yet. I do plan on. Um, sounds really interesting. I really want to actually have a deep, a deep dive myself of their podcast. Well, considering you and I share a, a fondness for Russian and Soviet history, I definitely think it is something you, Patrick, will appreciate in particular. So potting through time, deep dive into all that very interesting Soviet outlook and world and their very, very interesting, unique and pivotal role on how events unfolded uh, leading to and including the greatest military conflict in human history. So that's a plug. Okay, but today, as far as getting into the meat and bones of our operation, today we are covering 20 AD to 30 AD. And in my case, there's a great deal that happens in this. But before we begin... We will start out by giving our all-important and now entirely obligatory AD History Podcast Ground Rules. 1. Evaluate events in the context they occurred. 2. Over the span of recorded history, the way it was recorded, its methodology, and the facts that are important have changed immensely. How we view history today is not necessarily how we viewed it 50 years ago. 3. Nothing in history was inevitable. And 4. History and the past is like a different country. Don't think there's many podcasts, Paul, that have ground rules. I think that's a very unique feature for us. <laughs> it certainly is, but it works. It works. We're, it does work. It, 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 it seems, definitely works. So 
Today I'm going to lead off and we're going to be discussing a rather interesting character, one who was a legend in his own time and he was treated as such. Indeed, we are going to be talking about the Roman that was known as Germanicus, the very promising you know, role model figure for Romans of his time and after, and the fact that his death in his early 30s was both untimely and by some believed to be murder most foul. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Yet today we're going to be doing a little bit of an Agatha Christie whodunit. So Germanicus was born in 15 BC. And though they're not in, scholars are not entirely sure of his actual given name, it was likely that he was born Nero Claudius Drusus. His father was Nero, also Nero Claudius Drusus, and his mother was Antonio Minor. His paternal grandmother was Livia, who was the second wife of one we know as Princeps, or later Emperor Augustus, also known as Octavian. He is, in fact, one of his, his biological grandfather as well is the late Mark Antony, which of course, was so important in our last episode, of course. And when it comes to his father, Drusus, Drusus's younger brother was the one we know now as the Emperor Tiberius. They were a very close pair. And when Livia divorced their biological father and, and married Augustus Caesar, Augustus ended up adopting both as his own sons. And as I mentioned, Drusus and Tiberius were very close, so much so that when Drusus died quite young on the battlefield, he ended up dying of injuries due to being thrown off a horse. In those last 30 days of his life, Tiberius basically took off from Rome with great haste to be with his brother at his bedside. And when Drusus died, Augustus very strongly requested that Tiberius adopt this young Germanicus as his own son. And it creates a very close family tie between the both of them. Naturally, he loses his father at a rather young age. He ends up really catching the eye of his step-grandfather, Augustus. Augustus favored him for a great many reasons, but some even really believe that, in a way, he Augustus may have been seeing a, a part of himself in this young Germanicus. He even had a desire to make him his direct heir to succeed him in this princeps for citizen, because they didn't go by emperor until the beginning of the second century, as we mentioned in the previous episode. But that didn't end up happening. What ended up happening is Livia, which would be Germanicus's grandmother, very, very heavily campaigned with Augustus. And this is interesting because Livia was very much an honored consul for Augustus in, in a way that very, very few other Roman wives of politicians were. So she wanted to make sure that Tiberius, at the end of the day, would take the throne. And, and certainly he was named in Augustus as well as the chief beneficiary of his estate. And even though Germanicus is not the direct heir, he certainly wants Germanicus to be the direct heir and line after Tiberius. The only problem is he didn't actually formalize this agreement. But the fact of the matter is when he had his grand, you know, his step-grandfather Augustus as essentially 
a benefactor, it did a, a great deal for his professional life. It wasn't simply the fact that, we, that it was nepotism. This was that rare combination of nepotism in addition to somebody who was genuinely extremely capable and, in fact, in many ways beloved. So when we're looking at a character like this, it's very, very difficult to parse the man from the legend, especially when, as I said, he was a legend living in his own time, being this great role model for embodying the best of all of these Roman characteristics. And he was celebrated for both his successes on the battlefield and his behavior and character was also kind of unusual as well. Yes, he was stoic, but he wasn't in any way pretentious or elitist. He was known for being able to and would converse with Romans of, of any strata of that very segmented society by class, which in and of itself is quite unusual. He was very loyal. He was extremely self-effacing, and he showed bravery in all situations, even outside of the battlefield. And he ended up marrying a woman by the name of Agrippina. This is one of Augustus's many matchmaking endeavors, one of which that we are familiar with from the last episode when he forced Tiberius to divorce his first wife, whom he loved, and marry his daughter, Yulia, and it was a match made in hell, as we know. And in fact, Yulia and Tiberius, Tiberius was not her first husband. In fact, her first husband was Marcus Agrippa, which was Augustus's closest and chief military ally. And they had a daughter by the name of Agrippina, who was in fact matched with Germanicus. And unlike the other matchmaking endeavors of Augustus, this one really worked out. Believe it or not, it actually worked out. They really, really cared for each other. So much so, in fact, Agrippina would actually go with Germanicus on campaign, and they would usually bring their youngest child with them as well. They ended up having nine children together. Five or six ended up surviving into adulthood, I believe. They lost several shortly after birth, which of course is not uncommon in fact, one of those children, and the one who would turn out to be the most infamous, was the one we know today as Caligula. So he was very unusual in this way. On top of that, he also had a great ability to derive loyalty from those who were under his command. He was very, not only personally brave, but he was very much one to lead from the front, lead by example, which as far as I'm concerned is the only kind of leadership that really matters regardless of the task at hand. And so this all very, very much factors into the legend of Germanicus, in addition to what he was known for in regards to his great sense of personal justice and fairness, regardless of whom he was dealing with. It was really quite exceptional and led to how Romans revered him over time. Um, you're saying this is like an Agatha Christie in a novel, and just from the description of Germanicus and his legend, I can already see this because it's always in those novels, it's always the best person who dies. Like he was friends of everyone. Everyone cared for him. He was lovely to all. That is like a perfect mur uh, murder victim right there already happening. It was just making me chuckle when I noticed that. Two words about that observation. Slam dunk. <laughs> yeah. It's just like the perfect murder victim right there. He's like, who's asking to be murdered. Oh, goodness. Yes. He was eventually going to get into somebody's <laughs> way. Did he have like one day before his retirement when he died as well? Oh, if only he had reached retirement. If only he had reached <laughs> retirement. So the other other interesting way to think about this couple, Germanicus and Agrippina, they both were essentially celebrities. The best way to envisage them, if you want to kind of put it in a modern way that the listeners can visualize, imagine 
the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge. So William Windsor and Kate, except they actually have executive power. They very much factor in to the, the greater power struggle. And on top of that, and this is where things definitely differ, you can't imagine either of those two spending years together with one of their children on a live battlefield. So that's the kind of celebrity, that's kind of how they were thought of, but it had a much more practical impact, whereas as now, of course, making that particular comparison, it's a ceremonial uh, constitutional monarchy. But it kind of sets the scene for who these two really were and what they meant. And as far as the name Germanicus is concerned, the name Germanicus, in fact, is a moniker that he was given, which essentially just means the German. Uh, Germanic tribes, of course, didn't call themselves German. That was very much a, a Latin construct. And it's something that when he had these great successes fighting the Germans on the Rhine and beyond that, once again, build this legend of Germanicus. Think about being so great at something. It's You literally get to the point where you're named after the thing that you've done so well. This, this is a common thing in uh, Roman times, the Scipio Africanus as well, who I believe sort of claimed a lot of Africa for the Roman Empire, or was it he had success in Africa and he took on the name Scipio Africanus? Yes, it's same, same yeah. very, very much the same idea. Yeah. And so as I was mentioning to you earlier, even though there was definitely nepotism, given the fact that he was the grand, you know, step-grandson of Augustus and he also was very favored by Augustus, this allowed him to take on roles that might not have otherwise been available to him. His first real big assignment was actually becoming Tiberius's chief of staff in the Balkans. So there was a very, very large uprising in the Balkans, specifically rebel Pannonian and Dalmatian enemies, where by the time Germanicus comes about and becomes the quaestor, which is chief of staff for Tiberius, they were literally fighting these two in a way that was very unusual for, for Roman military campaigns. Their enemies, their rebel enemies, were basically conducting an insurgency raid type of conflict. Low intensity, but clearly in a way in which they would fight them, and probably the only way they could fight them, because it's very, very difficult to fight well-trained Roman legions on the field. But it was a prolonged battle because both of them were well encamped. They were in the various mountains that encompass modern-day Bosnia, but they ultimately had to break down the legions and conduct various, you know, counterinsurgency campaigns, even though that particular phrase would not come about really for about 2,000 years. That's essentially what they were doing. And this really does end near 9 AD. And because of the success that was happening there against a very skillful enemy that was extremely stubborn and well-resourced, being able to subdue that at Tiberius's right hand ends up being a huge deal. On top of the fact, Augustus made him Tiberius's chief of staff four years before he was elite, before he was legally allowed to assume the post. And on top of that, once this campaign was finished, he was also, along with Tiberius, deployed to the, the Rhine once again because, and we didn't have a chance to discuss this in episode one, but one of the biggest events that was happening in the first decade of the first century AD was the Ro Roman legions getting massacred uh, under General Varus at the Totenberg Forest. 
not only was it a serious military defeat, it was an extreme embarrassment to the Roman world and one that really undercut a lot of the general morale and spirit of the people. And so he was deployed there going between and fighting between 11 and 12 AD. And because of this loss of the Totenberg force a couple of years prior, there was a distinct possibility that the Germans that were essentially united behind the leadership of Arminius, who's also known as Hermann, there's a big statue of him in southern Germany, I believe, to this day, there was a very, very real chance that they could have crossed the Rhine and flooded into Roman Gaul. And because of the joint efforts on the Rhine at that time between Tiberius and Germanicus, in addition to a well-placed ally, that did not happen. And so both of them eventually in 12 AD end up going back to Rome, and they are celebrated as returning heroes. This is really where Germanicus begins getting that sort of public profile. It's it's really a very big deal. In fact, when he returns, he is appointed a co-consul. And in doing so, this is another example of nepotism at play and kind of leapfrogging the law, but it's hard to say that he really wasn't qualified for it. He basically skipped two major positions in in order to get there, one being, of course, the aedile, which is a public administrative position for maintaining public buildings and festivals, and the other is a praetor, which is an elected governor or army commander in some cases in certain provinces. And of course, when he becomes a co-consul, he gets that all-important power of imperium. This is a big deal. And so basically what happens from here In 13 AD, which is a year before Augustus himself died, Augustus deployed him to the Rhine once again to be in control and overall command of the legions on the Rhine. And there's something like eight legions there, you know, at least 80,000 troops. It comprised a very, very large, very large number of all of the legions that were deployed throughout the empire at that time. So it really gave him a lot of men under his command. And when Augustus eventually dies, and we mentioned this in, this in the last episode, Tiberius ends up assu- ascending to the princap slash emperor role, and some of the legions on the Rhine begin to mutiny. And in satiating this particular situation, Germanicus ended up going back, and one of the big issues they have, of course, was pay. In addition to the fact that prior to a several years prior, most of the times the length of service for a given troop was 16 years, but Augustus ended up extending that an additional four to 20. So those who had you know already been near 16 years, they were looking to getting out, they finally have an additional four years. And an additional four years might as well be a lifetime in this case, because you could just as easily die in that time one day beyond the, what you were expecting to serve. So he grandfathered in those who had already done 16 years. As far as pay, he literally paid them out of his own pocket, in addition to doing things, of course, like in terms of reestablishing order, essentially executing ringleaders, things like that, things that needed to happen. And the other thing that he did, this was really important. It also began the first of three major expeditions into Germania, the first one in this case being into the Upper Rhine. That way he could focus his troops' attention, get them focused and moving towards the same goal, and effectively do what they're supposed to do. Because very, very little can happen that's good when you simply have soldiers that are camped out somewhere for a long period of time in harsh conditions. And so in this case, between 14 AD and 17 AD, 
he takes him on three major expeditions. And throughout this particular time, and these were very, very successful expeditions into Germany, far, far more, might I add, successful than his predecessors, the, fir the first of which on the Rhine was Tiberius, and Tiberius spent almost 22 years there, as well as Germanicus's biological father, Drusus. So it kind of ran in the family for him. And in, in those expeditions, he did things like find prisoners of war that were legions that were uh, part of legions that were destroyed in the Totenberg Forest. He very noticeably recaptured several of the golden eagle standards of these legions because in losing any sort of standard for a unit is literally considered the height of humiliation. In addition to that, they very, very nearly capture Hermon, or as the Romans called him, Arminius. And though he got away, they managed to capture his wife, who was pregnant with Arminius's slash Herman's son, who he sent back to Rome, and she lived under essentially house arrest for a time, and Hermann's child ended up being born in Roman captivity. So he ends up having a lot of success there. It brings him a great deal of prestige. But the problem is, if you're looking at it from the perspective of Tiberius, there are quite a few Roman scholars as well as modern scholars who believed that Tiberius, despite the fact that Germanicus was his adopted son, was in fact somehow a threat to Tiberius. And this is not necessarily unfounded, not because Germanicus ever had any sort of ambition to do this sort of thing. He did not. But in fact, there were members of those legions who even approached Germanicus and said, we'll overthrow Tiberius for you and we'll make you emperor. And the fact of the matter is, had Germanicus wanted to do that, even with half of the troops under his command, he could have marched on Rome and there would have been nothing Tiberius could have done about it. And so what ends up happening, and this is fairly interesting indeed. One of the ways that Tiberius is able to potentially handle this issue is by getting rid of Germanicus by sending him very, very far away, far away from his troops, where the people he encounter will only know him by reputation and give him a particularly difficult assignment. So what Tiberius ends up doing is sending Germanicus to the east. And this can be interpreted in a couple of ways. It can be interpreted, as we mentioned, as trying to get rid of him and get him as far away from Rome and his loyal troops as possible. And it can also be interpreted as something of a tradition that's cropped up where the, the appointed heir of a particular princeps and later emperor was sent to the east as something of a sign that this person is going to follow me. And Germanicus is not terribly enthusiastic about this assignment. He's obviously very duty-bound. And in going to these, basically what Tiberius wants him to do is he basically makes him a, a plenipotentiary, which means that somebody that's a multi-purpose figure, in this case both militarily and politically, and try to organize and solidify the various kingdoms and peoples that are aligned with Rome out there at that very time. So what ends up happening, though, is a very interesting change as well. In addition to assigning Germanicus to the east, he sends a fellow by the surname Piso. Piso is an interesting figure because he's highly irascible. In fact, there's really no other way to put it. The dude was a jerk. In fact, the only person that he ever respected or showed any sort of reverence for was the late Emperor Augustus. And he's no, you know, he's no friend of Tiberius. And so there's there's not a lot of good happening there between them. So he sends Piso out there. And Piso, in terms of the eventual murder of Germanicus, Piso ends up getting fingered as the guy. 
And as we go through the whodunit, you'll see some of the problems that exist here. It seems far more plausible, in fact, that the reason Tiberius sent Piso out there simultaneous to Germanicus, in all likelihood, simply because he wanted to make Germanicus's life more difficult. Piso definitely did not genuflect to anybody, and he did not make it easy on Germanicus when they both first got out there. Uh, one of the things he did was relax the routine of the legions that were stationed in Syria, because in this case, Piso is made governor of Syria. And once again, anytime you have troops sitting around that are, are not well disciplined and they don't have a very specific regimentation of behavior, things can get pretty bad pretty quick and you can't rely on them. They can cause trouble. This has been going on since the beginning of time. And so naturally they clash and Piso does it by doing things like, you know, relaxing the, the legions and their routine, various kind of passive aggressive type issues. And when he confronts, Germ you know, when Germanicus confronts him over that, he gives very insincere and, you know, certainly lacking genuine concern for the fact that he essentially is being insubordinate. You know, he'll get directives from Germanicus and he won't implement them properly or not do it at all, make it look like miscommunication or just a misunderstanding. Basically, he's making life as difficult for Germanicus as possible, who once again has a very, very difficult job in and of itself. It's a huge part of ter huge territory. It's very significant, very strategically significant to the Romans, and Piso doesn't make an easy time. In addition to that, there's one very, very specific episode in all of this that in hindsight looks very, very problematic, which is there's a very, very big reason why Romans and the Roman Empire in general has always been so interested prior to actually acquiring it in the land of Egypt, and because it has a great deal of wealth, but even beyond just things like gold and silver and trade to the Far East and India, you also have a situation where it is exceptionally fertile in regards to farming. In fact, it really does end up being called one of the major breadbaskets of the empire. And when it's incorporated formally into the empire, it's considered an imperial province. And what this means is anybody that is of senatorial rank or equivalent cannot enter Egypt without the express consent of the princeps or emperor in this case. And Germanicus decides to do this because there is a significant famine that strikes Egypt in, in the late portion of the previous decade. And the reason he does this and takes it on his own initiative is because he wants to organize relief efforts, open up the, the government stores of grain, bring down the price of grain so the people, uh, their subjects in Egypt can eat. And Germanicus knows full well that it's illegal for him to enter without that very specific form of consent. Chances are it probably was just an act of hubris because he probably thought the, you know, the law didn't apply to him. And he has good reason to think that. I mean, a lot of his career, despite the fact he's very capable, was based on the idea that not all laws apply to him. And so on top of that, there's also something of a naivety there. Because he then, you know, thinks that, well, my intentions are good. I'm not here to harm my adopted father in any way. Same concept as when legionnaires on the Rhine approached him to overthrow Tiberius. He was, you know, very almost palpably loyal to his family and his, you know, his emperor or princeps. 
And the big reason why they don't want anybody of significant rank going there is because of the fact that it's one of the breadbaskets. In theory, whoever controls Egypt could starve out Rome and therefore overthrow the sitting emperor. And when he's there, not only is he re doing relief efforts and whatnot, he's also doing some sightseeing, which is really fascinating because seeing things like the Giza Plateau, a lot of the things he's seeing, like including the pyramids, were just as ancient to him as they are to us now. And that's really interesting to think about, isn't it? Egypt is so unfathomably old. Like, however old you think everything else is, Egypt's got a few thousand years on it. Oh, yeah, totally. In fact, a lot of these big events, whether it be, uh, you know, the, the classic pharaohs, the ones we know really well, the building of the pyramids, all of that sort of stuff. In terms of time, Germanicus doing his sightseeing is closer to us in modernity time wise than he was to the buildings and sites that he went to go and see. And so he does end up eventually returning back to Syria. But in doing so, many have many have postulated that this very much could have risen the paranoia that Tiberius had that eventually Germanicus could come sweeping in there and basically kill him and take the 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 Emperor Princeps position, even though that was not on the docket whatsoever. So when he in the time back in Syria, he ends up falling ill. And when he ends up falling ill the first time, he ends up falling ill twice, in fact, he is of the absolute conviction that it was Piso and that Piso had somehow poisoned him. And what he ends up doing, even though he may not have had the authority to do it, in fact, he ends up banishing back to Rome Piso and his wife. He ends up recovering after this, but he ends up falling ill again which is really, really quite interesting. In fact, it's believed because of that that they might have been poisoned a second time, which is kind of a, a bizarre thought in and of itself. But at that point, during the, the second poisoning, Piso and his wife are already on their way back to Rome. But after the first poisoning and after they're sent off, he has his troops and some local officials go and raid the palace in Antioch that Piso and his wife lived. And they were you know, when they were basically sleuthing around, they were they found things like unknown bodies from various tombs. They found inscriptions in lead with, you know, various incantations, some of which included Germanicus's name, as well as very, I believe, various substances that all of which to those who are going through the house of the time very, very much invoke the concept of black magic, that there was something bizarre and afoot going on here. But for what it's worth, he ends up, you know, he ends up dying. And this is a, a huge deal because when he dies and the word gets back to Rome, Roman citizens begin mourning him in a formal fashion, even before they're prompted to do so by authorities. That is how much Germanicus is loved by the Roman people. And you can certainly understand, given that affection and reverence, that Tiberius, even though it's his stepson and he's always been loyal, and all of these characteristics of him I've mentioned have all very much lined up with the historical actions of his of his record of behavior, this is something that could be very, very dangerous to him. And in dying, they did no postmortem. In fact, uh, he his remains were cremated, I believe, through a pyre 
while they were in Syria, and Agrippina takes his remains back to Rome with her, essentially his, his ashes, if you will. And they, there's no, they don't mention anything about being able to assign a, a specific poison that might have killed him. It, it's very, very unclear in that respect. But, you know, the fact of the matter is forensic evidence of the early first century doesn't hold a candle to the things that we're able to determine now with great certainty. So it, it could it potentially could have been hemlock, of course. There's the toxic version that we're all familiar with in terms of how Socrates met his fate. Hemlock also does occur naturally in certain types of water in northern Europe, both of which are widely available in Syria, as well as a substance known as uh, belladonna, which by some scholars believe could have been the one. But essentially, the evidence at best overall is unclear. And so ultimately, when Piso gets back to Rome, he ends up getting fingered based on what has been found in the accusations that were made. And he, before knowing very well that his uh, fate was sealed, he committed suicide before he was able to be sentenced. But the fact of the matter is, when it comes to the murder of Germanicus itself, there are still so many questions, and it's very difficult to accept on its fate that it was necessarily Piso. So now, Patrick, the game you and I are going to play is the classic Agatha Christie, Who Done It? Who had the motive to ultimately kill Germanicus? And ultimately, who were the beneficiaries of his death, both pro and con? And we're going to start with the least likely subjects, which I think are probably the most interesting of all. The least likely subject is actually Germanicus's grandmother, who was obviously always very, very much an advocate for ensuring Tiberius's success when Augustus was still alive. And she still held a great deal of influence because she was the mother of the sitting princeps slash emperor. And it's hard to know exactly what she would have thought, but she was known to be very, very cagey and, and somebody who was as adept a political counselor to Augustus as any, as any person in that position could have hoped for. She was also very much an honored widow. So it's possible that she, she could have wanted him out of the way, seeing the possibility, even though there's really no evidence to suggest this, that at some point in time, Germanicus would come about and ultimately upend the whole thing. The next interesting culprit here is actually uh, Plancia, which is Piso's wife. She was actually a very close friend and confidant of Livia, who Livia being the grandmother of Germanicus, mother of Tiberius, and second wife to Augustus. And part of that friendship undoubtedly was campaigning Livia in order to get her to go to Tiberius on Piso's behalf to even get the appointment as the Syrian governor. And given her various associations that are believed to exist between Plancia and various black magic practitioners, it's entirely possible that it, some have suggested that Plancia could have done it in conjunction with those means as a favor to Livia. But along with Piso, she most certainly would have been a a very obvious suspect. The next fellow that is, of course, what she must talk about is the one who is actually fingered for doing this, which is Piso. And, and the problem with this is that, one, 
if he indeed did this, of course, he would be the most obvious suspect because having Germanicus out of the way meant that he could exercise his authority as governor of Syria without having this appointed plenipotentiary hanging over him. In addition to being very op- the most obvious candidate under the circumstances, was it possible that, of course, Piso could have been a middleman to orchestrate this on behalf of someone else? Well, the only two people that would have very serious interest to do that and have direct communication with Piso would, of course, be Tiberius himself, as well as the usurper, who we'll talk more about in a, in a moment, known as Sejanus, who was the head of the Praetorian Guard. But the fact of the matter is, it seemed very unlikely that, given how much Piso antagonized Germanicus while he was there, in addition to the uh, you know various obvious, uh, very obvious beneficiary of such a situation, it seems very unlikely that it was Piso who would do that. And also, Piso doesn't seem like a man who did a whole lot of favors for other people without any sort of you know, distinct guarantee that he would not suffer the consequences for any such action. On top of the fact, once again, Piso and Tiberius have clashed before. Uh, you know, it's entirely possible that between Tiberius or, or, or Sejanus, like I said, who we'll talk more about in a moment, found a way to do business with Piso. It's very, very hard to believe because it's hard to imagine somebody like Piso under the circumstances actually getting away with it in any way whatsoever, even if he was made guarantees discreetly and in private. It's just a very unfathomable scenario that he would go and do somebody else's dirty work if there was any chance of blowback. The next candidate is one that I think is far, far more interesting and one that is far more notorious, which is the man known as Sejanus. Lucius Sejanius was the head, of course, of the Roman Imperial Guard that was largely tasked with protecting the emperor. Uh, Sejanus was the most favored of Tiberius's cohorts. He was largely viewed as an upstart. He was, he was not born of senatorial rank. He was part of the equestrian class. And so the fact that he ends up very quickly gaining the favor of Tiberius and then essentially using that favor to be put as head of the Praetorian Guard this rubbed a lot of the inner circle of power in this higher echelon the wrong way. They don't like startups. They don't like seeing people basically, you know, leapfrog the system, especially in that way. They're very, very particular and orderly in how someone might ascend to such positions. And in this case, Sejanus is also very notable for his ability to manipulate and cajole people of any respect. He did a very, very fine job of having other people do his dirty work, in addition to the fact that through most of his time with Tiberius, he was also Tiberius's closest consular. In fact, when Tiberius eventually goes, leaves Rome, and exiles himself onto Capri and is off doing his own thing, Sejanus ends up gaining a great deal of power because he is the main avenue of communication between the Senate or anybody and Tiberius. So if you're the gatekeeper, you obviously possess a great deal of power. And Sejanus, of course, also had great ambitions to ascend to that imperial top role, despite the fact that he was not born into the class to do it. Several years after this, in fact, he begins trying to undertake a coup against Tiberius, but ends up getting totally thwarted. So in this case, it's possible that Sejanus was involved, if not on Tiberius's behalf, maybe his own, because when you have Germanicus out of the way, that means that you have the clear heir apparent 
no longer blocking you and the job that you aspire to. And of course, the last and most prominent of all of the suspects, of course, is the Emperor Tiberius, who, like we said, is both the uncle and adopted father of Germanicus. And and for anybody in this position, it's, you know, it's often been said, and I always love this quote, paranoia is the disease of the dictator. And having fear of Germanicus being too powerful was an obvious, an obvious in, of interest and, and clearly flagged in the mind of anybody who was assuming such a position. And it's very difficult to imagine that Tiberius viewed it otherwise. Uh, in addition to the fact that he created this, this great legendary status, he has these incredibly loyal troops sitting on the Rhine that would just be waiting for his order to go and make Germanicus emperor. And on top of that, as I mentioned previous, sending Germanicus to the east very, very easily could be interpreted as him just getting him away from Rome and away from the troops that could cause trouble on his behalf. And in addition to that, and this is the big one, as we talked a little bit about earlier, is the Egypt fiasco. And in the Egypt fiasco, if Tiberius had any sort of worry or paranoia prior to this, it is very, very clear that his go Germanicus going into Egypt, even with the best of intentions and clearly no malice, would have definitely tipped off Tiberius. Now, how he did it or, or what he might have done to make that happen is definitely unclear because if it's so obvious that Tiberius is involved, he'll end up becoming as dead as Germanicus because the people won't accept this, his troops won't accept it, it will create an untenable situation which could lead to a very, very devastating scenario. So these are the classic five suspects. These are the five suspects most Romans thought were involved. Most of their theories involved them, even if not each undertaking individually or perhaps some sort of conspiracy in connection. Of course, conspiracy is extremely difficult to prove in any legal sense for a modern audience. Uh, it's almost downright impossible, let alone, you know, a 2000 year old cold case for all intents and purposes. That is what we're dealing with. And it was not easy trying to figure out who might have been involved here and why. But the fact of the matter is, it seemed by all accounts that a good and capable man had died and died long before his time. But we also can't, you know, dismiss the possibility that it was none of them, and he simply fell ill to an area of the world in which he was exposed to certain viruses and, and, and strains of this, that, or another that he was in no way prepared for physiologically. Really, it is one of the great cold cases in history. So, Paul K. DiCapraro, as I want to call you right now. Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> Who do you think you did it? Who do you think did it? Well, obviously... If I were sitting in a modern court of law, I would have nothing but circumstantial evidence, which all of this is because so little evidence existed, and they really just kind of ran through it. Because basically, you know you know how they always have, like, you know, Drusus, the Elder, Alexander the Great? His moniker undoubtedly would have been Piso the Patsy. So, <laughs> you know, he's definitely Piso the Patsy. I'm not really of the belief that it was Piso. 
I don't think Pisa was that stupid. And on top of that, I don't think Pisa was ever interested in doing anyone else's dirty work. He was interested in one thing, the interest and well-being of Pisa and, and killing off somebody who modern Romans considered their Alexander the Great was not a super great way in order to do that. On top of the fact, he would be a ridiculously obvious suspect. Um, but for me, just for me, the in terms of motive, I don't. It's always very hard to know Tiberius because he is so mercurial and so cryptic, and he basically has no charisma whatsoever. And we talked about this last time and the issues that creates with the Senate. He was not a great politician. So while undoubtedly I have no doubt that he could have paranoia to that effect, I think the person that that uh, the listeners should take a much, much more um, closer look at and give more scrutiny is, of course, Sejanus, because Sejanus very clearly after this time had great ambitions. He was an upstart. In fact, you know, on, on top of the fact that Sejanus was was really a um, a really, really nasty figure overall, we could definitely call him Sejanus the Ambitious. And and that's very, very true. And he had a lot to benefit from this. He wasn't necessarily the most obvious of all the suspects that were at play here, but he has the motive. He definitely has the ability, possibly, to work through proxies to make this happen, perhaps. You know, this certainly could have happened due to the actions of somebody that history essentially overlooked. There's so many people that would have had to interact with Germanicus, even in his own home. And after the first poisoning, you know, security, especially regarding things like food, became much, much tighter around Germanicus. So it's possible he could have had somebody that was much closer to Germanicus than anybody had suspected at the time. But he has the personality and disposition. He has the ambition. The death of Germanicus is only going to help him based on what he aspires to do and what we see that he does in order to cajole and manipulate Tiberius with the idea in time to ultimately overthrow him, Sejanus is the one that I would look after because based on how this went down, in so many ways that matter based on the five classic suspects, Sejanus is the one to give much greater scrutiny. And he was also to be somebody at the time who would have been well protected in undertaking such an adventure. So for me... I feel like it has a lot of the Sejanus calling cards in it. He had the means, he had the motive, and it really just fit his character overall. It could have been a combination of various people. It's very difficult to tell over 2,000 years, but if I had to finger somebody and just make my best educated guess, because that's what it is, I would finger Sejanus. I think that's a very good uh, hypothesis you've come to, but I still think it's the butler. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you you know what? In in a sense, it really may... It's always the butler. Yeah, and and in truth, it really may have been the butler, you know? It it seems like you would have to have gotten somebody on the inside. Yeah. And that's the only thing that makes sense to me, because whoever it was that really orchestrated this doesn't have their direct fingerprints at, at the scene of the crime. And so we're left with this legend who was, died long before he should have without any great answer, but certainly, you know, Pizzo the Patsy has gone down in history as that person, but I don't necessarily think he deserves that because it's just very, very hard to believe. It really is. It's such an interesting story. It's like this really original whodunit, and you can just see from here, like, 
I, I, I don't know how, if Agatha Christie or anything like that has taken inspiration from this story, but it's just, it's such an, I know it's about death, which is obviously very morbid, but people have an interest in morbid stuff like this, whodunits. You see it even like today, like there's so many true crime podcasts. But you have an interest in this and we have like the original version of it right here. We're officially a true crimes podcast as well too now. Yeah, we finally we finally uh, dipped our toe in the pool. I mean, heck, it even has its own category, you know, on all of these podcasts. It's such a huge thing. And on top of that... Not only is it have you know interest to this day, which it does because a lot of it's pretty amazing, but we're still talking about this after two thousand years, Patrick. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> you know? it's crazy. Uh. And speaking of things we are still talking about two thousand years later, that point brings it on quite nicely to what I'll be talking about this time because there's a book that we are still talking about from two thousand years ago. But for now, I'm going to hand you over to the voice of AD history herself. Anna Domini. This is the AD History Podcast. Now, Patrick, you and I were very, very lucky. Um, well, very fortunate because we reached out to our audience and we asked them if they had any questions for us. And the first question we have is actually from Twitter because you can tweet it at us, send it in a Facebook comment or Facebook message, email at adhistorypodcast at tgnreview.com. So the first one is from at producer underscore Reese. As you progress through history, what specific people or events are you excited to cover? Patrick, by all means. So um, something I'm, I wouldn't say too much specific uh, people or one specific person or one specific event, but a time period I'm really interested in covering is the 1500s, which might sound really weird, just why the 1500s? Well, I've been doing a lot of looking into the 1500s recently and so much was going on on planet Earth at that time. We had uh, Shakespeare, which is a huge deal over here in England. I'd love to look more into uh, Shakespeare. And um, if you follow Name Explain, recently you probably saw I did a video about Martin Luther. And he was about the 1500s, the Reformations. Just really fascinating uh, time in that period of time. And just those 100 years or so, that 10 episodes, I'm hoping we turn up a lot of interesting information because I don't know if this is what you're looking for. Um, I'm excited to cover it because I don't know much about it, if that makes sense. So I want to look into it so I can find out more about it. It's not because I already know loads about it I want to share with you guys. I'm looking forward to finding out more about it myself. And of course, over in the States, you know, America, as it is, is starting to, be, to become a thing by then. Columbus, no, yeah, Columbus has already been there, I believe. Yeah, 1492 was his first voyage. I thought so, yeah. So Columbus is freshly got there. And it's all happening over in the New World at that time. It just sounds like a really interesting hundred years of history that I'm looking forward to diving into. Ooh, that's hard to beat. Yeah, no, the Protestant Reformation is amazing stuff. I remember when I first learned about it, it was, it was totally engrossing. As far as my answer is concerned, you know, that is not the easiest question to answer because there's so much to pick from. I mean, obviously, I have my, my natural element in the 20th century, which clearly is a long way off at this point. 1500s is a long way off. Yeah, we really have a long way mm. to go at this point. Mm. But, uh, you know, clearly, I've always been a big fan of the World Wars, the Cold War, the early Soviet period, Stalinism, all of that, but that's not particularly new. I've always enjoyed early American history, as well as the Civil War. The 1600s in Britain, I think, are fascinating, specifically when we're talking about Oliver Cromwell. Who is, a, who is a character that I think is extremely fascinating uh, and not altogether easy to understand. But 
I think he is particularly interesting. I really do love that part of it. The American Revolution in and of itself and all of its aspects are really truly wonderful in, in pretty much any way you could imagine. The Byzantines, you know, the, the rule of the Byzantines I've always found generally amazing. Going back to the 19th century, uh, German unification uh, in Asia, the, the Meiji Restoration, or even the entire period of the Tokugawa Shogunate. That's really cool stuff to me. So definitely a lot to look forward to. But, you know, uh, whether it be the Tokugawa Shogunate and the Meiji Restoration, your German unification, you know, the, the American Revolution, the Civil War, all of those things, and especially Oliver Cromwell, like I said, is a really fascinating character to me. That would Those, those would be some very, very big highlights for something I'd be looking forward to. Yeah, Oliver Cromwell. And, and this is going to be really bad as a Brit myself. I know of Oliver Cromwell, but I don't know the exact ins and outs. It will be interesting to look into it myself as well and find out about it myself. He's quite the polarizing figure over here. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that at some point. Something I've actually been meaning to ask you for a long time is, you know, what do modern Britons generally know about Oliver Cromwell and what their feelings are on him? So that's a discussion I'd like to have with you at some point because yeah. it's really it's really fascinating stuff. Yeah, we, we can have that on the lead up to Oliver Cromwell, uh, Rise to Power. Oh, yes. Yeah. Okay, so we have another question from at Brief Historia. What sources do you use for your research? So do you mind if I uh, begin this one by by beginning with the W word, the word we shouldn't say. Oh, <laughs> at, at our own peril. Yeah, sure. So Wikipedia, it gets a lot of hate, and I can understand why. I wouldn't say AD history comes 100% from Wikipedia. It's a great starting point for research. It's really good to look for a brief overview of something and then diving from there. Even Wikipedia has sources. So I, I'll be honest with you, I do use Wikipedia to just sort of look for things to begin with but then beyond that all kinds of sources come into play when i'm researching this i've used websites i've used books you know all kinds of manner of things there's not one definitive source we use to find all our information at least not for myself anyway no no i mean just just as a as a general addendum to what you're saying wikipedia can actually can indeed be an excellent uh jumping point as kind of a a window or or a stepping stool into a particular period and you know, I came from, you know, I'm part of um, the millennial generation that when I was in college, obviously, professors were always very, very stringent about the fact, do not cite Wikipedia as a source. And yeah, that, that's, that's good advice. As far as the sources that are listed there, that's the jumping point. So what I would say in terms of myself, anytime I'm doing research, is the first question I'm asking is, who is telling me this? What are their qualifications for doing so? And why are they telling me this? Because everybody has, whether it be history or anything, generally might have some sort of agenda that could very well color their research or outlook on a particular period of time or course of events. You always have to ask yourself that question, who is this person? What are their qualifications? And why are they telling me this? And beyond that, I could definitely tell you early on, you know, some of these sources that I've used, and we have all of our sources listed on the landing page and on YouTube, it's there as well. And I believe it's actually showing up now on the podcast directories that we are listed on. But early on, some of my biggest takes uh, have come from Dame Mary Beard's uh, SPQR, uh, The Silk Roads, uh, Simon Sabag Montefiore's Jerusalem, The Biography, really excellent sources that have added a lot to what we're doing here. In fact, my sort of section 
for today's episode is more or less directly from the source. It's as close to the source as it gets, if that makes sense. My section's about the source of the information, if that makes any sort of sense. <laughs> yeah, there's nothing better than having that sort of primary source that it's just kind of unfiltered and you have to, to work with it as it is there. Whereas, you know, you'll get really good historical works, but contemporaneous accounts or, or just whatever the prime artifact is can't beat it. So the next question we have is from at jockq underscore da. Next episode, when? Question mark. So we should have probably said this earlier. We've had quite a few messages from people asking, like, when's the episode going to be? I've seen quite a few. I've seen some YouTube comments some tweets. Um, the current plan is one episode a month. We're just test running things, seeing how it's all going. Greasing the wheels still, trying to figure out the most optimal way to make the podcast, get it more in production quicker, make production easier, quicker, and hopefully from there. And if you guys enjoy it, episodes will become more regular, but for now it is just one a month. Yeah, and it's made sense for us to do it that way because when we started this, you can never be sure what an audience will take to, what they can't. And on top of that, obviously, we we both each have our professional obligations independent of the show and and the and which do deserve its own time early on and every episode you hear is a a new adaptation as we're learning how to do this better and really just kind of refine the process but the fact that you guys are even asking that question tells us a lot of what we know and what we had hoped to hear when we started it's so nice hearing people want to hear more episodes. Part of me was worried that people wouldn't enjoy this because that's just my disposition in life. I always expect the worst. But to hear people go, oh, this is like enjoying this. I want more episodes of it. That's fantastic to hear. So thank you all so much for asking that and just for listening. Yes, absolutely. It, when, when we hear from you guys and we see that you're listening, you know, there's no superior gratification that we can experience in all of this. It really does make it worthwhile. So our next question is actually via email by emailing adhistorypodcast at tgnreview.com. And it comes from a Sam in Michigan, which who asks, how did Patrick and I meet? Hmm. So I guess, do you want to take this story to begin with? Because you initiated contact with me first, I would say. Well, no, I'd say you did. If you want to start the story, then I can pop in when I come into play. I first reached out to Patrick either late February or early March of 2018 because I wanted to do a piece on him about Name Explain. And always, when, when anytime you're going to reach out to someone, at least for me, I try to do a little bit of homework, try to get a feel of what the person's like and if they'd be someone worth talking to. And this kind of ties into another tweet that was that kind of got worked into this, but uh, basically was saying something a lot, you know, asking about Patrick looking a lot like Leon Trotsky. And and the decider for me to reach out and make contact initially was the fact he had described himself as YouTube's number one Leon Trotsky impersonator, in which case I said, all right, all right, got to talk to this guy. This, this, <laughs> this will be interesting. So I did, and of course he very kindly responded. Funnily enough, that probably started not only us talking to one another, but us understanding we have a mutual interest in history, which obviously... Of a question later on would talk more about our interest in history but me having that in my uh, twitter bio probably made you realize oh this guy's into history he's not just about names and that i guess helped creation of this what we're making right now oh yeah absolutely and, and anytime you're reaching out to someone cold like that first off you can never even be sure that they're going to respond let alone if they'll see it giving the spam filter and, and i would say our first interaction 
um, was about as good an interaction as one can hope for when you're, you know, when you're in my position and you're doing an interview. And we definitely, it, there was definitely a lot of common ground there. And, you know, the real thread that allowed this to continue was you were already going underway in writing the manuscript for your book. Yes. And and yes. we had agreed that we would follow up again once it was nearing publication, which mm -hmm. at that point was about six months later. So we talked in mm. September of 2018, but there was a caveat to that that I didn't expect in that conversation, which, of course, you asking, well, Paul, are you from the New York City area? I was like, yeah, why? It's like, well, I'm going to be visiting New York in the end of October and early November by myself. And obviously, this is a wonderful opportunity to, you know, meet up and and kind of get the pulse for one another, which we did. Um, in fact, I met Patrick with my brother and his fiance. We went out to dinner in Brooklyn, which is where they live. That was such a good meal, and their view was amazing. Oh my god, I'm so jealous of your brother's view. <laughs> you know, funny, yeah, yeah, really, seriously. Well, you know, when they, when they bought the place, it didn't have that view initially. There was actually a building there when they bought it. It's just right. afterwards they the building got demolished, and all of a sudden <sighs> they have this incredible view of uh, you know, of the East uh, River. Can you uh text your brother and ask for a picture of his view so we can put up on our social media program uh, platforms just so they know what we're talking about here. <laughs> heck i have pictures of that just right on my phone <laughs> yeah absolutely we can do that well ask, ask him and his partner if that's okay then yeah we'll have to get that out there <laughs> oh yeah no I, I i'm sure emily and robert will have any issue that's with right. that so here's our last question it's also via email from atara in cape town south africa we're really getting around here how did you guys develop an interest in history it just it just happened i guess i, I, I my interest in history definitely came around my teenage years, probably like 15, 16, probably, probably earlier. So in uh, English education, we have these things called uh, GCSEs, and that's when we pick what subjects we want to focus on, like to begin with. And in my school, it was always geography or history. I don't know if that's the same around the world, but it, like, it seems like you had to pick one. It's kind of like a West Side Story. You had the geography kids and the history kids. Mm -hmm. And each other saw each other as big nerds. Like we thought the uh, geography kids were big nerds. Uh, the geography kids thought the history kids were big nerds. But I was obviously a history kid. And I would say the main reason I developed an interesting history is probably the same reason a lot of people develop interest in the subjects they have. And that was the uh, fantastic teachers I had. Two teachers in particular, Mr. Crawley and Mr. Osborne. If there's any chance they're listening to this, you're the reason I'm making this podcast right now. So sorry about that. But those two <laughs> teachers so enjoyable and so knowledgeable they just spurred me to enjoy history and even though i wasn't that good at it to begin with i've carried on that enjoyment like that wanting to know more about history and from there it moved on and also sorry i've just remembered one extra teacher um so those two teachers uh taught me a lot of modern history cold war world wars that sort of thing uh, a couple years later i studied classical civilizations in college which is different to american college but i won't get into detail right into detail right with that right now and I was taught by a lady called Kim Drummond, and she gave me my love of classical history. So between those three teachers, I would say that's where my interesting history comes from. Like most things, if you have people who are excited and engaging with the con uh, subject, you're going to be excited and engaging about it too. And hopefully we're doing that for some of you guys. Oh, yeah, totally. So for me, history is kind of a um, a genetic inheritance. So it's it's just... It runs very, very deeply, it, pretty much everywhere in the family. 
I need to add to that too. My dad and mum are both massive history buffs. They wouldn't forgive me if I didn't mention them. We've had history books lining our walls from the beginning of like since I've been born. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so I was always surrounded by that. Mm. And for what it's worth, it started off actually kind of with my dad, in fact. So he he's the one who really kind of started the the World War II flame, if you were, when, when I was really quite young. And the same thing happened with my brother. And it really expanded from there into all sorts of different aspects. But wherever you go in the family, it, it's always it's always right there. Even new family members I meet that are more distantly related hmm. seem to possess it as well, interestingly enough. I, I graduated Loyola Chicago, a uh, political science major, and I've always considered political science and history to be at the very least kissing cousins, if you will. So there, there's always that connection there. But in terms of actually diving in and, and producing stuff history-wise. Uh, so for a good deal of my early 20s, I had some rather significant health issues that helped me up quite a bit. And during that time, I was watch- I just stumbled upon Netflix watching the, the multi-part documentary, Ken Burns' The War, about the American experience hmm. of the Second World War from a bottom-up perspective. So people who actually fought it, people that were actually here on the home front. It's really brilliant. And like most Ken Burns documentary, it also had amazing music, especially from the period in question. And what it ended up doing for me is it really reignited something that ended up actually becoming a bit dormant in my life. So I probably went from about age 15 to age 24, and in in some ways, having not pursued it, the interest was there, but it was not something that I was terribly focused in at the time. And for all that it's worth, it, it, it ignited it. Basically, one question begot another, curiosity took off, and it really uh, just reignited something that had been otherwise dormant for some time to the point where I was eventually publishing on the subject or doing something very much the likes of what you and I are doing now. But for all it's worth in terms of history, it's been, in, in essence, a lifelong love. And to do something like this is just almost a natural extension of that. Yes, yeah. You could say, and the rest is history. Oh, boy. <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. Oh, that's beautiful. This is the AD History Podcast. Keep up with the show and join the discussion by following AD History on Twitter with the handle at AD History PC and the hashtag AD History. Check us out over on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube by searching AD History Podcast as well as, of course, tgnreview.com slash adhistorypodcast. Now back to Paul and Patrick. And thank you, Anna. Now, Patrick, we're going into something that is also a bit of a departure from what we've done so far, and it is a look into the Roman world, and specifically their world, quite literally. That is the best way to put this, Paul. I couldn't put it myself. Um, so before I really look into this, I want to talk about what AD history is going to be like going forward. I mean, it's not changing in any way massively, but so far we've I've personally looked at sort of more big picture history, how I like to refer to it as sort of, you know, emperors raising in power and dying, empires coming and going. A top-down history, if you yes, will. Yes, that's a great way to put it, a top-down history. And of course that stuff's really interesting, but I also want to focus on some of the smaller everyday aspects of the past. And obviously going this far back in time, a lot of that stuff's going to be quite hard to find. Um, I'm sure as we get more to the present day, um, 
we'll find more small stuff like that we'll get to talk about but it's just something i want you guys to know ad history will be like this and like right now i'm taking the departure from ancient china and as paul mentioned looking to the roman world and the greek world and most literally their sort of personal world and also something i want to mention is that while i will always try and cover something spanning that entire 10 years sometimes it might be just one thing that happened in those 10 years and this is one of those stories and this is the story of strabo and the geography now you might be thinking strabo geography who were they well let me explain to you strabo was a greek uh, writer historian geographer philosopher just one of those all-round uh, brain boxes you got back in those days he was believed to be born between 64 and 63 bc in Amasia Pontus, which is in modern-day Turkey. And he was born into connection with the king of that town, King Mithridates, uh, the sixth of Pontus. However, in the Third Mithridaic War between Pontus and Rome, which was led by Pompey at the time, as we've sort of been covering on your side, his family switched sides to ally with Rome. So this was a guy who had connections to his Greek world and the Roman world, thanks to this. And of course, we can only imagine this really helped shape his understanding of the wider world because this allowed him access to Rome from Turkey. So this is something I thought was quite impressive because you read a lot in this time of history, people wouldn't travel much. Like, And I'm not talking about they wouldn't go around their uh, country much. They wouldn't leave their city or like settlement much. That was all you knew on the whole. So even just going from Rome to Turkey was quite an impressive feat in that time in history. Though these weren't the only two places he went to, uh, we have recordings of him spending time in Rome, Kush, which I believe is part of India, Kush. I might be wrong in that, comments will let me know. He also went to Tuscany, Asia Minor, and he went, even went as far south as Ethiopia, which is just crazy for someone of that time to have travelled so much. And of course he wrote the Geography, or Geographica as it would have been known as at that time, and it's believed he started writing it in 20 BC, and he published it first in 7 BC, but he wasn't done with it there. He continued working on it, and the final version of it was published in 23 AD, hence why we can talk about it here. Though, however, he died in 24 AD. So we don't know if this was the final version of the book, or this is just where he got to writing until he died. It's very possible that if he didn't die, he could have just carried on writing and writing. Though I think he was in his 80s by 24 AD, so I don't know if we would have got much more out of him. But that was just a brief idea of who Strabo was. While we're looking into him, we're also looking into his book, uh, The Geography or Geographica. I'm going to be sticking with The Geography because it's easier for me to say. But what exactly was this book and why is it so important for me to be talking about it? Well, it wasn't really one book. It was 17 books covering the entire known world to the Greeks and Romans of that time which is just incredible. And these books give details of the shape of the land, their sizes, their plant and animal life, and even what the people were like who lived in these lands. What is so incredible about this book primarily is that it's one of the few books from this period in time that has survived to this present day. We have writings, but complete books. I mean, all 17 of these books are more or less complete, minus some parts missing from book seven, which is just an amazing feat as most other books from this time have been lost it might sound like a dense book i guess to modern uh, eyes is somewhat dense but this was written in a very easy to understand way so average people could understand it 
You can even check out its English translation, which was done by a man by the name of Horace Leonard Jones, and he translated it from 1917 to 1932, just to show what an undertaking it was to translate it into English. And this is supposedly a literal word-for-word translation. It wasn't adapted into English in any ways. And it's still somewhat easy to read. It's not the easiest of reads, but it's not like my first geography, but it's still understandable. You can still read that, and it makes sense to the modern... Uh, eyes and modern ears it's not like Shakespeare where you read that and it still is hard to interpret and it's available online I've, I've been fortunate enough to read it online here I'd love to get an actual hardback copy of it they seem quite expensive but online will do I'm sure we'll link it down below so you guys can read it yourself and it's also thought this was written at the same time as Strabo's other book History which however is lost to time and you know if we had that book as well what we could know about that time obviously before that time it's all about history would be so important but that's a lost relic to history and fortunately we have the geography still with us and what i've done here my section isn't sort of going over the events of how this book was written what are the ramifications of this book it's just looking into what this book told us about this world and just finding interesting things about that time period so i've got some quotes here uh, some from the sections of this book and some of them I find interesting some of them I find funny all kinds of stuff like that in here um but before I go into detail about this you're going to hear a word um stadia which is a word uh, Strabo used in this book a stadia is the plural form of a stadion which is an ancient Greek measurement so that's why it mentions it sometime in here so I just thought I'd mention it if you're confused it's named after the circumference of an ancient stadium, so that's how they would have measured things. And I don't know if this is a thing in uh, American pool, but a common way we measure things here in England is by football pitches. Like, oh, that's three football pitches long. Is that something you guys do in America? Constantly, in fact. I, I when I when I look at things and I and I get them in in yardage. Hmm. I mean, usually one of the great common forms of measurement in which people are able to kind of abstract you know grasp an abstract size of something is by comparing them in length to american football fields so 100 yards or 300 feet mm. and it's just interesting we still do this to this day and meanwhile the ancient greeks oh, yeah. were doing this and they were actually formalizing it into a unit of measurement a stadia and that's what the strabo used a lot in this book and that's thought to be around 600 feet or 182 meters a study is believed to have evolved into a furlong in english so i just thought i'll cover that here for you guys oh. yeah so they all relate to each other anyway here are some of the extracts of the book i wanted to cover so this is strabo talking about iberia the iberian peninsula uh, which houses spain and portugal and andorra uh, all that sort of stuff here's what he had to say about it Iberia is like an ox hide extending in length from west to east, its four parts towards the east, and in breadth from north to south. It is 6,000 stadia in length all told, and 5,000 stadia in its greatest breadth, though in some places it is much less than 3,000 stadia in breadth, particularly near the Pyrenees, which form its eastern side. What I find so interesting about this is it's quite accurate. I love the description of Iberia as an ox hide. If you've ever seen like an ox hide or a cattle hide, like as a rug you can look at it and think that does look a bit like iberia it definitely does it's very very apt. yeah it's just a really interesting description however you will see he said the pyrenees are on iberia's eastern side while the pyrenees are east they're sort of northeast as we know 
but uh, Strabo and clearly other cartographers of the time bought, they were on the eastern side and Strabo was even kind enough to draw maps for us yeah. and I'm sure they'll be attached they'll be uh, on our social media platforms for sure after this video goes live and they're fascinating. Yeah. I'm sure, Paul. Have you, I think I've attached them to my oh. show notes here. Yes. Uh, I, 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 if you scroll to the bottom. No, I, I did. I did find them actually before you even sent me your notes and you told me this is what you were doing. I, mm. I, I looked up to see if there were any maps based on that. And and in this case, and there is really fascinating stuff. So for the most part, he gets a lot right. There's definitely so much right. Yes. I mean, there's some particulars in the details around the Mediterranean, but the Mediterranean in and of itself is pretty darn good. It, it's certainly missing um, the the Scandinavian countries. It's missing what we would largely consider to be the Baltic, um, things like that, important stuff. But in terms of their known world, their known world, it is far, far more accurate than any modern listener if they're not familiar with this subject, would ever believe possible. Mm, honestly, just Google. If you listen to this right now, I'm sure you have internet if you listen to this right now, Google a Strabo map and it'll come out like Italy's. It's, it's a bit wonky, but it's the right shape. And even like I said, his map of uh, Europe, you see the uh, Pyrenees are directly east of Iberia. So it's not quite right, but it's just interesting seeing this blend of Almost right, but not quite. And I just found that so fascinating. It, it really is. Also, he seems to have left Ireland entirely in the Atlantic Ocean. Yes, <laughs> Ireland's just shoved up there. <laughs> and it's so much more northern than Britannia. Um, yeah, it will actually come back. To, speaking of islands north of uh, Britain, we'll talk about that in a bit because there's something really interesting here about that as well. But anyway, talking of Britain as well, uh, Strabo even wrote about the men of Britain, which... I took some personal joy and offense too. <laughs> just it's what we, we've talked about this it's before. It's funny, Paul. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and people have an interest in their own history. I think we mentioned it last uh, last time on the show. Oh yeah. So yeah, when I saw this book, I went straight to Britain. I want to see what he said about my country, and it's it, yeah, and it is funny. Anyway, the men of Britain are taller than the Celtic and not so yellowed-haired, although their bodies are looser build. The following is an indication of their size. I myself in Rome saw mere lads towering as half a foot above the tallest people in the city. Although they were bandy-legged and presented no fair lines anywhere else in their figure, their habits are in part like those of the Kelty, but in part more simple and barbaric, so much so that, on account of their inexperience, some of them, although well supplied with milk, make no cheese, and they have no experience in gardening or other agricultural pursuits. And like I said, this just made me laugh that this like ancient interpretation of the British kind of reminds you of some men I know now anyway, of uh, <laughs> <laughs> some British men I know now, just like depicting like, here's here's this country full of English people. They're big and strong, but they're kind of stupid. And I'm like, hey, that's a little bit accurate and I'm offended. I'm allowed to say that. <laughs> I just remember I was reading, I was going through your show notes. I think you wrote something to the effect of, oh, I think I ran into them last Saturday night. <laughs> yes, yeah, that's what I've written here, yeah. It sounds like the kind of people I'd see on a Saturday night, these ancient Brit uh, Britons. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. It's just, yeah, it's just really interesting stuff in here. And, of course, I couldn't not mention this. Uh, Strabo, in his book, when he's talking about the lands of Germany, he explains the name of the Germans. Uh, just, just obviously something I found interesting because... 
some ancient etymology um which has been going on at least 2000 years before i started making it on youtube people have always had an interest in this stuff oh yeah um anyway as he said about it now the parts beyond arenas immediately after the country of the kelty sloped towards the east and occupied by the germans who though they vary slightly from celtic stock in that they are wilder taller and have yellower hair or in all other respects similar for in build habits and modes of life they are such as i have said the kelty are and i also think that it was for this reason that the romans assigned them the name germani as though they wished to indicate thereby they were genuine galatea in the language of the romans Germani means genuine. So, like I said, just some interesting etymology going on there, even all the way back then. I wonder why they why they ascribed them that one particular characteristic to the point in which it effectively became the name of the the various disparate people and tribes mm. of that entire portion of Europe. That's what I'm curious about. I, I mean, I know why it stuck around because the Romans had such big influence. So that's why that name in particular stuck around. Well, I know that part, but why they why why they thought of them as genuine? I wish I knew. Maybe they were just fresh. I mean, it seems you get the impression the Romans weren't the biggest fans of the Celtics. That's for our history. That's the kind of idea you get. So maybe meeting these people who weren't of Celtic origin, they thought, "We like you guys. You're genuine." If that makes sense, that's my idea. I kind of wonder about it too, because naturally the the Romans never did subdue Germania. Uh, they they lost a lot of blood and treasure mm. trying to do it, and and ge- generally failed. You know, there was it even got up to the point where Augustus basically said upon his death to Tiberius, "Keep your rear end out of Germania," and it wasn't a hard sell, as we know. But the one thing that was most certain, and this is only a guess. This is nothing academic or studying, but a guess. If there's anything that it is genuine, it is their desire not to come on bended knee to Rome under any circumstances. Mm. Maybe the Romans respected that of them. I would, ho- I would, ho- I would hope so. You know, like maybe it was like, oh, you're genuine. Yeah, we respect the fact that you're not gonna bend your knee for us. We don't know. I'm afraid though. But um, the last extract I have is quite an odd one. And this comes from Strabo's writings on India, and specifically how Indian hunters would catch apes. Now the hunters, when they see an ape seated on a tree, place inside a bowl containing water and rub their own eyes with it, and then they put down a bowl of bird lime instead of the water, go away and lie in wait at a distance. And when the animal leaps down and besmears itself with the bird lime, and when upon winking, its eyelids are shut together, the hunter approach it and take it alive. Now, this is one way, but there is another. They put on baggy breeches like trousers and then go away, leaving behind them others that are shaggy and smeared in- inside with bird lime. And when the animal put these on, they're easily captured. Um, So bird lime, I looked into it, was like a sticky substance, which was made to use to catch birds and other animals. So that's what I never heard bird lime before. And this is just bizarre. I mean, the fact they were hunting apes... You very rarely hear about apes being hunted for any reason in the modern times. Even like I did some research into like eating ape. I think it was a thing, but apparently, yeah, here's just some examples. And the way they're hunting these animals, um, like they put trousers, they put some like nice looking trousers down and hope the ape would get into them. I don't know how accurate this is, 
but it's just bizarre. Like, would this really have worked? Yeah, well, that's something that is kind of interesting to think about. When I saw Hunting of Ape at first, I, I, that kind of took me aback because mm. uh, I, I had to make sure I had read that correctly because obviously that's very far from our experience. You know, we we tend to treat apes specifically in, you know, Western countries as in many cases, you know, our, our, our closest you know, genetic cousin on on the greater evolutionary tree. If I may uh, tangent, I see, this is a real tangent, I see apes as somewhat equal. Like, obviously, I mentioned in the beginning, I was in Sri Lanka recently, and monkeys are everywhere there. You get, like, little uh, apes. They're like squirrels in parks here. You go to a park, you see a group of monkeys, and you can just watch them for hours. And I can't, like, to me, they are, like, are equal. Like, they are so human like us. You see them sitting cross-legged. I just find them fascinating, especially the idea of eating monkey. It's just something you don't really hear much about. Yeah, it's almost cannibalistic from our perspective. It is. Yeah, it really does feel like that. I mean, unless you're um, watching Indiana Jones 2, then it's okay to eat monkey brain. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 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 That that film hasn't aged well. That one particularly. No, no. Well, hey, some films age better than others. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But the the thing I wrote about this is what you notice with these ways is the humans would do something and hope the monkey would do it back. So they'd rub their own eyes with water, then put down this bird lime. And hope the monkey would rub it. So that got me thinking, is this, I've got no evidence to back this up, but is this where the term monkey see, monkey do comes from? Well, that, that is an interesting idea. I have no idea. Mm. No, I have no idea. It was was just an interesting thing I pointed out. That's just, that's some of the few bits I looked into in this book, but I'd seriously go recommend reading it for yourself. It's so fascinating. There'll be links down below. There's a really good website that's translated it. And it's not just like a PDF, it's like clickable links. You can click the exact part you want to go to. It's it's a really, if you're going to read this, that's the best way to read it. I didn't read it all myself. I might in the future, so who knows? And there's just some things I found so amazing about these books. Strabo's Geography. Let's not attempt to say Geographica again. Um, it shows <laughs> us, <laughs> it shows us just how interconnected this world was and how often we presume that people only really knew about what was going on in their settlement at that time. But we see here that people understood there was a wider world out there, and Strabo uh, knew about it in so much detail. It was amazing. And it's also amazing how accurate the sizes are, as we mentioned the maps. And there isn't just a map of Europe. There's a map of the entire world. Like, you see the tip of Africa. um, I think it goes into Asia somewhat. And it's somewhat accurate to what they knew it looks like you've taken our world map and just cut the rest of africa off it goes down to about ethiopia as we mentioned but just cuts off from there it is really fascinating how accurate they could understand what the world looked like especially in a time before like you could use planes or satellites to check what the world looked like from above i find this incredible well, I mean, we were, we've we've been making maps far longer than we've had the ability for any sort of aerial ability to observe land masses. And something I'm curious about, what you know about these ancient methods of cartography. So I, I did a tiny bit of research into this and I couldn't come up with much. <laughs> I don't think that's my fault, though. One of the parts I read about, I was looking into a Roman cartography 
and the article I was reading just said, we don't know much about how Romans actually mapped out things. So I was like, oh, that's brilliant then. I guess I don't know either. But one thing I did read was Greeks and Romans used the maps in different ways. Romans primarily used maps for like strategic reasons. So for war, obviously for battles, they knew they wanted, that was their use for maps for very literal reasons for travel, for uh, battles. Whereas Greeks used them for more aesthetic reasons because they look nice on walls and they would include like latitudes, that sort of thing to their maps. So while we don't know how we made them, we do have an understanding that Greeks and Romans use maps for different reasons. I thought that was kind of interesting. No, it, it, it certainly is. Well, you didn't need much of a, of a map for the two sides to find each other in the Peloponnesian War. No, no. Just, uh, just uh, throwing, throw that in there. <laughs> <laughs> Feeling a little crusty this afternoon. Yeah same um but as well as it's cool how accurate these are their inaccuracies are really cool as well and i didn't have an extract from this i didn't copy and paste one into my thing but at one point uh strabo talks about an island called fuel and what's interesting is this island doesn't actually exist like it's believed to either be the shetland islands or the orkney islands way above scotland but this was like the known like the known northest point to the Romans and Greeks, and they didn't really know much about it. It was just here lies fuel beyond Scotland, and it's just this sort of a somewhat mythical land. And obviously, if you look at a modern map, you won't find fuel anywhere. And I just found that was kind of interesting too. And aside from how amazing what's on there, what's missing is amazing too. And I didn't know um, the Romans didn't know of the Baltic or Scandinavia. That was quite a shock to me when I saw that map. I thought there must have been some connection there, but evidently not. Um, Like I said, I presume they knew these parts of the world. And what shocked me most, well, didn't shock me most, but it's a constant reminder. Paul, what a tiny little baby your country is. (laughs) Despite how important it is to the world stage now, people simply didn't know it existed then. Yeah, and and you know, so the new world has been, you know, in in the big scheme of even human history, what is five hundred years between now and when Europe first really started understanding the concept of uh, and and a greater understanding of the new world? Obviously, its exploration and uh, its discovery from various European peoples happens over uh, an extended period of time, but really begins to accelerate in a very noticeable fashion about 500 years ago. And that's nothing in the, in the Greco Roman world. That's nothing. No, it's nothing at all. But nevertheless, I always say this, Oh, America, your babies, but it's amazing how much you've accomplished in such, such a short amount of time. (laughs) That's what I always say. You're young, but you're impressive. (laughs) Anyway, Something else I find so interesting about this is it shows us that even all the way back then, people had a fascination for geography. Um, I know this is a history podcast, but history and geography are quite intertwined at times. Like Even in school, it's always like geography and history. And it just shows you people had a fascination about geography, which still resonates with people today. I'm fascinated reading this book. And people like myself who make uh, YouTube videos that are somewhat about geography still so popular and it's just all the way back then things that are popular then are still popular now and i just got a big interest out of uh, that and finally it's just a peek into a world we don't know this is such a prime source we're so fortunate to have um that 
but it just shows us how the world was back then in a way no amazing history book could be unfortunately there are some amazing history books written now but this isn't a history book this is the real deal um and it's in some ways it's the sort of the, it's the closest we have to time travel in my eyes we can see how the world was in that time thanks to this um and we're lucky to have this book while so many others were lost and how much could we know about the world if these books weren't lost and that's that's really what this got me thinking especially with uh, strabo's histories who knows what we can know about the world if that wasn't lost either but maybe i'm just being too pessimistic maybe we should just be thankful that the geography has remained so intact well yes and when you always have a little bit of information there's always a desire to have more information i think it's pretty i think that's a pretty uh, a shared experience for most people but what i find fascinating about this is not not just that this is a primary source because that's incredible in and of itself especially one that manages to survive this long intact as it was written having the actual Obviously, we're looking at a translated version, but it's not adjusted for grammar or a modern, uh, modern use of language necessarily. Despite the fact it's still very intelligible to a modern yes, audience, you, you but, see, I had to struggle reading some of that when I was reading those quotes. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. yeah it can be a little hmm. clunky, but when outside of just the pure narration of it, when you're just kind of when reading it through your eyes, you're hearing it in the narrator in one's own head. It's very, it's very uh, possible to grasp. And I love any sort of history that can tell us about a people, not just in terms of what they knew, but what they thought they knew about themselves at the time. That is a very interesting, it's a very interesting form of looking back and and understanding not just what they thought their world was but the various details of it because it helps paint a greater picture of what they think their importance is and where they feel they fit in a bigger picture yes, that's such a good way to put it it's um yeah it's just it's people and this is and this is the furthest they'd possibly been in time if that makes any sort of sense it's quite a weird thing to say but there wasn't, it's not people looking back on themselves, it's people looking at now, this is now, this is happening right now. It's in the same way people probably look back at this podcast and think, huh, that's a weird thing they're talking about. It, it, we can just do that with this, and I find that so fascinating. Yes, it definitely is. Now, something that I'm curious about, and I don't know how much of this is is knowable, but in terms of what uh, Strabo is describing. And also, Kush is what we would consider to be today uh, either southern, modern Egypt, or northern, most northern portion of Sudan. Why did I think it was India? <laughs> Mystery solved. Yeah, I, when I looked it up, I could have just as easily been. Mm. I, I had no idea either. I was just clicking through it after we talked. And so, something that I'm I'm curious about, and it's hard to know, but is what he is are the peoples that he describes in the geography people that he's describing from his own first-hand observations or is any of it second-hand is this all based on his own travel and interaction so i'm i i don't know the answer straight up personally i like to imagine it's a bit of a mix of both cuz as we know he did travel quite a lot 
Um, so he would have built up his own experiences, his own opinions on people and places from there. And this does read somewhat like a travel book. However, these books are also uh, described as encyclopedias. And encyclopedias usually haven't got that formality to them. They're usually very informal books, encyclopedias. Normally, encyclopedias aren't written by someone who knows everything. They're sort of like collections of information all in one place. I don't imagine someone who wrote the encyclopedia knows knew all that stuff. They just collected everything. So I think as well as knowing his own stuff, he was something of a collector of this information. He probably talked to other uh, historians of his time and just accumulated that information altogether in these books. That's my uh, interpretation of the mat- of the matter. And in terms of the people that he saw, the the one the one that really sticks out to me, of course, is his observation on ancient Britons. And the reason that sticks out to me is because this fellow dies in 24 AD. And that means that at that point in time, it had been less than a century since Caesar made his first and second foray across the channel and into what is now Southern England. And I know that there's been various forms of communication and contact between the British Isles and the continent going back predating Roman times. But Strabo, being from ancient Anatolia, or what we would consider to be Roman Armenia, this this represents a very a very specific and very interesting piece of information because clearly Caesar did not have a heck of a lot of information on who he was going to uh, basically come up against when he crossed the channel. And so I'd be very curious to know if there are any records of his travel at the very least to what we would consider Normandy, Bay of the Seine, that kind of northwest Europe or just flat out northern France channel coast area because as far as i know and you can correct me on this is there any indication that he actually crossed the channel himself so no i don't think he ever crossed the channel himself i don't know if he even made it up that far to france and i feel quite confident in saying this because um i've just opened up uh the geography here and I've on his part about uh britain and he even writes specifically about caesar crossing the crossing the channel into britain i could read it for you if you're interested if you're willing to do so, absolutely. I'd love to hear this. The defied Caesar crossed over to the island twice, although he came back in haste, without accomplishing anything great or proceeding far into the island, not only on account of the quarrels that took place in the land of the Celti, among the barbarians and his own soldiers as well, but also on account of the fact that many of his ships had been lost at the time of the full moon, since the ebb tide and the flood time got their increase at that time. However, he won two or three victories over the Britons, albeit he carried along two legions of armies and he brought back hostages, slaves and quantities of the rest of the booty. At present, however, some of the chieftains there, after the procuring their friendship of Caesar Augustus by sending embassies and by paying court to him, have not only dedicated offerings in the capital, but also managed to make the whole of their island virtually Roman property. So that is just a real brief summary of Romans in uh, Britain as told by Strapo via the geography. So I guess there's some history in this as well. But the fact he's writing that and he never mentioned personally himself going there makes me think he didn't go there himself personally. 
But it's interesting to note that he talked about people going to the island, especially Caesar's uh, visits to the island. Yes, those are those are interesting because it, it basically between Caesar's. I'm going off the top of my head here, but I'm pr- pretty sure it's accurate. Between Caesar's last visit and the next time Romans actually make their way uh, into southern modern day southern England is, I believe, almost a hundred years. Yeah, so they knew it was there. They just didn't really do anything with it. They thought it wasn't worth it. Hey, crossing the channel is not an easy thing. It, let's put it this way. I mean, Caesar had his own trouble getting to and fro. It was it was not an easy trip. And it remained a very difficult trip uh, until extremely recently. Yeah. Now, that it was certainly in a military capacity, because there was a reason why, of course, Napoleon had no ability to invade, and there was a reason why Hitler didn't have the mm-hmm. capacity to invade. But it just... In terms of outside of that military context, even still, it would be some time before there was a a consistent ability to have normal commercial or cultural ties between Britain and the continent in a way that was uh, in which you know you weren't needlessly and recklessly risking life and limb to even make what it's what thirteen. 13 kilometers at the at the narrowest mouth of, of the of the Straits of Dover. Yeah. So I, I was that, that that's something I was particularly curious about. Now, in terms of the other thing I want to ask you about, in terms of Strabo, is are there is there anything in his work that scholars go back and recognize as being a uh, an original and perhaps uh, extremely noteworthy, unique discovery originating from him. Nothing I could see personally. Um, as I mentioned, fuel I think is uh, really interesting. I think this is one of the main mentions of fuel existing. Obviously, we know it doesn't really exist in the shape or form they uh, interpreted it as. I wouldn't be surprised if it had done so. Like I said, this is a really ancient book to have, especially it's so handy to have it this easily. So I wouldn't be surprised if some sort of relics of the past we know of thanks to this book. Likewise, if we had the history still, I'm sure there's amazing stuff we don't know about to this day that that book talked about. Yeah, well, I, I, I'm, I'm certain you're correct. And the other thing I'm curious about, and this is a bit harder to ascertain, I think, in terms of thoughts or uh, ponderings, do you know if he ever had any recorded opinions on what he thought lie beyond the uh what's it the, the pillars of hercules but you know what we know today is the straits of gibraltar i didn't see anything about that it seems he felt quite happy to know that this was it um like i said i didn't read the entire book it, it, it despite being easy to read it's still quite a dense read at times um i didn't come across anything of him wondering Oh, I wonder what really is, if there is anything more. It seems like this was what it was. This is all there was to the world at this time. Yeah, even in his maps, you'd think if he if he had the idea that there was more out there, he might add it to his maps. But, you know, you see Africa in his world map. It's, it's literally cut off. It's like, okay, it ends now. There's not even a hint of... He's not even like it put on that map. Maybe there is more down here. I don't know if you've heard the classic here be dragons that you'd find on maps where they put dragons uh, in places they hadn't discovered. There's no metaphorical dragons on here. 
he seemed quite confident in going, this is it, this is the world, there's definitely nothing else here, nothing more to see, folks, it ends right here. Yeah, see, that I, I find that very interesting, because uh, I, I always am very curious to know who and what uh, the, you know, effectively the ancient world, in this case, when I mean the ancient world, I mean Europe, Africa, Asia, that modern landmass obviously we had people living elsewhere of course but what their thoughts were on what might lie beyond because obviously you can only go so far on you know on land there and your ability to travel by sail at that point is still relatively limited yeah but i I, i've always wondered about about that part something else i'm curious about this is more your personal uh, interpretation of what you have read do you gather any particular personality from the style of his writing? Is there anything that you feel you can ascertain about him personally based on what he put to paper? I get the impression he's quite... A, obviously, he's a clever a clever, a clever fella. Obviously, he's a very smart person. But you do get a bit of personality for it. Maybe it's just me reading into it, especially with that British part. You get kind of like he was quite a witty, smart person. And this isn't... Even though in some ways it was a very formal encyclopedia, you, you do get the impression his his own personality was put onto these pages. And likewise, that's something, you know, we have someone's personality written here. Obviously, we have letters from ancient Rome as well. But yes, I would say personally, there is like a hint of Strabo in these uh, words. Is it just formal writing? Like, isn't an ancient Wikipedia, if that makes sense? No, it, it certainly does make sense. Now, in, in terms of what your personal interpretations are of the work and this this view into Romans and how they viewed themselves in this world that they knew, what were some of your major takeaways from what you read on that particular perspective? What What did you take away about the Romans and how they saw themselves in the world they knew. They knew they were the centre of it, or they thought they were the centre of it, quite literally and met- yeah, <laughs> like metaphorically and yeah. literally, hence why maps, a lot of maps, hence why the West is the West and the East is the East, because it was the Romans and the British, of uh, the Romans initially, and then the British later on, who made the maps and put themselves in the middle. I think mean, that's all you need to know. That, you know obviously... It's a bloody circle we're living on. There is no east and west. They're just concepts. <laughs> They're just concepts. <laughs> I just want to get a clip of. I just want to get a clip of that statement. It's a bloody circle it's we're like, living. There on. isn't really an east and a west. That's just been created by us because we, like the Romans at this time, put themselves in the center. So yes, they. You, you just need that. You just need to look at um the map of Europe. I mean, actually, his map of the world has uh, Rome quite far off in the west. But you can see from here the idea that Rome was the center. I mean, he's got, I mean, especially in Greece, I would say as well. If you look at the, because um, he was a Greek, he was Greek uh, fundamentally, even though he came from, born in a part of Turkey, he's considered a Greek historian. And he wrote extensively on Greece in this book. I mean, like a lot of the main big islands have a chapter unto themselves each. So he clearly had his favorites. Is something I am curious about, just as as a as a point of clarification. So he he was from a a kingdom that ultimately got subsumed into Rome. Uh, if I remember correctly, it was it King Mithridates the sixth? Is it? Uh, as from what I can tell, is he is he considered a Greek historian or simply a Hellenized 
historian from ancient Anatolia. It could be that one. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised with that one, but I think for, for simpletons like me, he's described as just a Greek historian. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would hardly consider you a simpleton. Goodness gracious! Yeah, you're you're, you're the guy on YouTube that 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 made etymology oh, cool again. How, somehow, simpleton, simpleton, my ass. <laughs> but when you're looking at this, other other than merely its accuracy in general, like we can see the the map is it's pretty darn yeah. good all, all told now in in terms of something that what other than just the pure accuracy of of the map or some of the descriptions what were some things that you you experienced and and saw that genuinely caught you by surprise given whatever conceptions you may have had looking into this work um. I guess the thing that caught me by surprise is, like I've said, just how sort of accurate it all is and how how enjoyable a read it is in some points. So it can make you laugh, how like it can make you go, oh, yeah, like I was saying about um, Iberia being described as an ox hide. That's such a lovely description. It does make you go, oh, yeah, I didn't expect it to have stuff like that. I was amazed I could read, like, obviously it was in English, luckily enough, but that I could follow it at all. I thought it would be written, like I, was, like I said, this is easier to read than Shakespeare, and this is like 1,500 years before Shakespeare. So it does show you that he did make this to be easily written. And in terms of something that you feel that the audience should take away from this work, what, what do you think would be a great bigger idea that they really should know, and in particular... Why should they look into this further? I think the audience should look into this book simply to get an understanding, a real good, clear understanding of the world we're talking about at this time. It's see here it is put in uh, Patrick words. You know how the Lord of the Rings has the map at the beginning of the book, so when you're reading, you can go back to refer to things. Oh yes, absolutely. I think this book is kind of like that for this podcast. If we're ever talking about something, especially in these first few hundred years or so, you can be like, wait, what? And you can look at this book, read what was going on in Greece or what was going on in Britain at that time, go, oh, okay, then that's what they're talking about. It it really helps anchor your understanding of this world at this time. Yes, it, it definitely does. Um, and something I wanted to mention, <laughs> just because I know quite a bit of our audience uh, at first will certainly know you best from your other work. Just just knowing you personally, I find it fascinating how you can snap going from being Patrick Foote to the the narration voice of Patrick of Name Explain <laughs> in the drop of a hat and oh. then just revert right out of it. It's actually kind of an incredible thing to listen to when you when you're seeing it in real time. The the big thing about this podcast what people will put this is the main thing people will take most away from this podcast when i'm not reading a script i'm a bumbling mess i was so happy i had these massive quotes through like, i can read from a page thinking of things safe in my own head i can't do that <laughs> well you 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 give yourself far too little credit but uh, okay that that's that's fascinating it, do you have any closing thoughts on strabo's work or any sort of takeaway that you feel is most important to yourself 
having studied this. There's not really much more to say in all honesty, apart from what I have already said. I would just say, if you are uh, if you happen to come from the part of the world Strabo uh, is, talks about in his book, which is Europe, parts of Africa and uh, parts of Asia and parts of Europe at that as well, if you're fortunate enough to come from here like I was, I could go look at his interpretation of Britain. I would say find your part of the world and just read about it. See what uh, the ancient Romans and ancient Greeks thought of your country, your people at that time. Yes. And also something else that I think is really, really cool here is that the interconnectedness of this ancient world, where we think of it in modernity as places where a place where people generally didn't travel much and had very little knowledge of the greater world around them. But you and I can see, especially in these early stages of AD history, that that could not be further from the truth. They did know other people were out there. They did have contact with them. And that it is so much more interconnected than we can even possibly understand. And in a way, you and I are personally experiencing it only now just kind of hitting the very tip of the iceberg. That's what I was going to say. As the years go by and our podcast continues, these people are going to get to know themselves a whole lot better. <laughs> oh, I, I think if, if we only accomplish that, we will have accomplished a great deal. Mm. And hopefully we will learn more about ourselves as well. But I, but I, w- I will definitely mention, I will definitely proffer this looking at it. I, yes, I think personally in terms of my own life experience, I'm completely a product of this new world and the modern United States. However, when I look back, because it hasn't really been that long, really, since my own relatives and ancestors decided to you know, hop on a boat and come on over that in 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 most palpable in, in a most palpable way, especially in the Roman world being of Southern Mediterranean and specifically Italian descent, looking at this as an ancient look to ancestors that have of mine that have long since passed, I will never even know of, and just getting that slightest glimpse into the world in which they lived and where they saw themselves in it. And I find that to be one of the great gratifications for any study of history is when you begin to realize where the big picture is and where you fit into it, albeit distantly. You are listening to the AD History Podcast. Anyway, I think that brings us to the end of our journey for today. Patrick, where can people find us? You can find me personally on Twitter at NameExplainYT, and of course you can find me on my YouTube channel, NameExplain. And for myself, you can find me on my newly minted Twitter account at the handle, at History, as well as on the social media news platform Quartz by searching Paul K. DiCostanzo. Also, take a peek at my reader email submitted Q&A column, the World War II Brain Bucket over on TGNR. We have a link down in the description. If you enjoy AD history and you want to support the show, be sure to leave a glowing five-star review. Or if you're on YouTube, like, share, and subscribe. AD history really does depend on listeners like you leaving reviews and ratings to help support it. Now over to Anna to properly send you guys home. Thank you for listening and goodbye.
Yes. Thank you for listening. Be well. Until next time. Like all good things, we come to an end for today. Thank you for listening to the AD History Podcast. It is listeners such as yourself who make this show possible and truly awesome. Be sure to follow and subscribe for upcoming AD History Podcast episodes, available wherever podcasts are found. Also, follow AD History on social media. Follow the show on Twitter at the handle at ADHistoryPC, as well as on Facebook by visiting facebook.com slash adhistorypodcast and Instagram as adhistorypodcast. In addition to liking and subscribing on YouTube by searching adhistorypodcast. Do you have a direct comment or question for Paul and Patrick? Drop them an email at adhistorypodcast at tgnreview.com. Also, be sure to visit the show's homepage at tgnreview.com slash adhistorypodcast. On behalf of Paul and Patrick, thank you for listening to the AD History Podcast. We will see you again next time in the ever-growing tapestry of world history.